Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got Peter Whittle, who's the director at the New Culture Forum, Lee Jones, the Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, and also a fellow Hollensian, which basically means he speaks sense. And we've got anthropologist Marianne Erhota. It's true, us whole folk, we do speak nothing but sense, don't we? Plain speaking folk. You yes. sound like you're from Hull, but you don't, Lee. He's, pro- he's from the posh part of Hull, I think that's what it is, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, anyway, you know the drill on Jubes and Co, it's not just about us here, it's about you at home as well and your thoughts. You can get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk is the email address or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. And of course, I tell you this every night, so you should have done it by now, but just in case, you can get yourself over to the YouTube page and you can subscribe, you can watch us live uh, or you can see the best bits from the channel Whenever you search GB News, if you're watching from there already, good evening to you. Now, let's get into our top story. It's been two weeks since Russia began to invade Ukraine. The country's ambassador to the UK has asked for visa requirements to be lifted to allow 100,000 citizens to come to Britain. The number of people fleeing the war in Ukraine has jumped past 2.1 million. That's according to the latest figures from the UN's Refugee Agency. Well, our reporter, Paul Hawkins, is on the Hungary-Ukraine border as we speak. Good evening to you. What's the latest from where you are, Paul? Yeah, mor- uh, <laughs> morning. Good evening, uh, Michelle, from the uh, Berek Zerang Cultural Centre. We're just, uh, what, five kilometres from the border here with uh, Ukraine. And that figure you just gave, 2.1 million from uh, the UN's refugee agency. Uh, Poland, of course, taking the vast majority of those refugees. But the second highest country... At the moment is Hungary with 203,000 people who've passed from Ukraine into Hungary, a country that has a reputation for a government that is uh, strongly against uh, immigration uh, and and has, uh, you know, in the past sort of 10 years or so, the Viktor Orban government has kind of dismantled the (laughs) asylum uh, system and it has been, uh, you know, constantly talking a rhetoric that is very anti-immigration, but now it's found itself having... Uh, to have more of a sort of welcoming attitude to refugees. Oh no, Paul, we can't hear you. People have just arrived on a van from uh, the border uh, and they'll be given uh, aid. Some of the aid, in fact, which you can see behind me here, there's some uh, children's chairs. This has all been donated, by the way, by the Hungarian people. We can speak uh, now to to, uh, Koroi Olas, who's one of the volunteers who's uh, come here, you've come six, from your town 60 kilometres away, your, six, your yeah, city, that's, right. that's, that's right. right, yeah, to help out with this effort. Yeah. Um, first of all, why did you feel the need to come and volunteer? Well, uh, firstly, uh, we were curious uh, to see uh, what was going on, and on the other side, we would like to know if there is any chance to help. Hmm. And uh, we realised um, me can help, uh, and also, especially my wife, uh, who speaks Russian fluently, and uh, most of people uh, from Kharkov and Kiev uh, speaks fluent Russian. 
and uh, that was uh, one of the major things. And then we realized here uh, they really need uh, such a, any kind of help, not just food and uh, not just uh, beverages and so on, uh, but transport uh, from one place to another, uh, also uh, electrical uh, charging or uh, getting Wi-Fi in order to have uh, contact and communication. Okay, so or just, just killing the time. So can you just show us, if you just take us inside and just show us the, the kind of aid that the Hungarian people have been uh, donating. It's, it's astonishing when you walk inside this room. Unfortunately, here there is no such an order because uh, nobody can prepare for this kind of situation. And uh, here, as you can see, a lot of donation uh, yeah. come from uh, all around uh, Hungary. Yeah. And all kinds of, not just uh, food and, and uh, beverages, uh, but uh, toilet paper, um, Nappies for, as well, exactly, food for exactly. babies, etc. And then over here, there's some food. And is it, are, peop, are people kind of uh, yep. the donations keep coming in from, yeah, from around exactly. Hungary? All kinds of uh, things can. Uh, I also uh, took with my wife uh, cardboards uh, from a, a local uh, paper factory. Uh, that was a donation. Uh, we also ordered uh, refrigerators. Um, here, because there is a lot of, as you can see, milks and so on, uh, which can be um, useless a couple yeah. of days later. Yeah. And, 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 like, Hungary has a reputation because of Viktor Orban's government for being very kind of anti-refugee, anti-immigrant, but this is, this is, this seems like a, to the world, this is like a different face of Hungary. Yeah, it's a, it's a different situation, as you know, so. Um, why was it done? I wouldn't not uh, comment it. But but here right now, especially uh, because a lot of uh, Hungarian people are near in the border. Because as you know, uh, 60, 70 years ago, uh, the other side, 50, uh, 60 kilometers far from here, was still uh, belonged to Hungary. Mm. So many many Hungarian uh, people uh, live there or who feel they they were Hungary. Yeah, in, in, uh, in Ukraine. Yeah, in Ukraine. Yeah, Ukraine. Yeah. Is in that Ukraine. the area, the region called Transcarpathia? That's right, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, we want to help, but not just them, uh, but for all kinds of people. Mm. Uh, so since then, there is no uh, difference between uh, Hungarians or Ukrainians. Yeah. Uh, what what I know, those people are separated uh, a little bit, uh, who doesn't have paper at, at all because. Uh, this is a kind of Schengen uh, duty, uh, if I understood well, uh, to have a, a recourse. So who has biometric uh, passport? They, they can carry on, but if you don't have a biometric passport, you kind of get taken out of the queue. Yeah. And, and it's, the process is a, little, is a little bit longer for you, isn't it? Because they kind of want to know exactly. who's coming in and who's going yeah, out. Right? Exactly, yeah. uh, especially because we have difficulties with records. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. you know, uh, we use Arabic uh, ladders, they use uh, Syrian ladders, so, uh, and our IT system in the government is not prepared for uh, such a, a huge uh, data transfer. And on the other side, uh, we're going to um, give them also uh, refugees. Uh, if I know where they're going to get, everybody can get a 30 days temporary permission, and uh, they can go whenever they please yeah. uh, within it. Plus, yeah. uh, if I know well, our government uh, offered jobs, 
offered shelters, uh, anything for. Yeah, similar people. to the other EU countries. Akari, I've only just arrived in Hungary. What is Hungarian for thank you? Kusunum. Kusunum. I keep forgetting that. I keep forgetting that. Kusunum. Sorry. Thank you. Kusunum. So, uh, yeah, trying to trying to learn my amateur Hungarian at the moment, Michelle. But the situation in, in Hungary, very interesting. Viktor Orban, he, he didn't approve of uh, Ukraine's membership of the EU. Now he's approved of their fast-track membership of the European Union. He was moving Hungary closer to Russia. Now he's keeping his distance. So... Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine has put Viktor Orban in a, in a little bit of a difficult position and there's, a, there's a, a general election here only a month away. So it is really interesting how the politics plays out in this country with this situation. Indeed it is. Uh, Paul Hawkins, our reporter there from the Hungary-Ukrainian border, thank you for your time. Fascinating to see and, you know, such great human spirit, isn't it, when you're seeing all of those donations as well piling up. Uh, Russell's been in touch saying that whilst he's watching that report, he wants the UK to do more. Uh, Russell, I'd be fascinated to hear what exactly you think we should be doing. Uh, I'll tell you one thing people could be doing if they want uh, something to do. Uh, Ukraine has been asking for people from around the world to join an international defence legion, go to Ukraine and fight Russia. Uh, these are images from uh, the Defence of Ukraine's Twitter account. Basically, it's been reported that 150 British Army veterans uh, have taken up that offer and done exactly that. It's also feared, though, that four current serving soldiers have gone AWOL to join the fight in Ukraine. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says those that have done that will be prosecuted. Uh, what do you think, then? Uh, should British people be able to uh, head over to Ukraine and fight? Uh, Mesa Gifford joins me now, human rights activist and anti-ISIS campaigner. He was a former trader in the city of London. He went over to Syria to join the Syrian defence uh, forces in their fight against ISIS in 2016. Good evening to you, Mesa. Hi there. What do you think? I mean, we're talking here, I've just mentioned some of your background, former trader, you decided to take action, you weren't um, tra uh, trained in the military, you weren't a veteran, you just had enough and wanted to do something, you went over to Syria. What would you say uh, to anyone in the UK now that's watching events unfolding in Ukraine and wants to go over there and get involved? I'd say to think very carefully about the implications of going over. Uh, this is a very different conflict to the one in Syria. Um, people, uh, if you do get captured by the Russians, will they treat you like a Ukrainian soldier? Will they treat you under the Geneva Convention? Or are you a terrorist to them? Um, so that may have severe implications for you if you're captured. You, you could be killed. And you could also be prosecuted when you get home. So I think people would have to be very clear uh, uh, with what they want to achieve in Ukraine. And also I'd encourage them uh, to find out all the facts on the ground uh, before attempting to go. Yeah, I mean, you say about finding out the facts on the ground, I've got to be honest, um, this is a, it's a very peculiar times we live in with the advent of social media, etc. So finding out the facts on the ground is not as easy as one might uh, suggest. And I think we're all bombarded with various images, very emotive images. So, I mean, how does one even do that? If you're sitting there, you're watching various things, you're getting yourself riled up, you want to get out. How would they follow your advice of actually getting up to speed with what is accurately happening? Well, first of all, you'd have to decide what you actually want to go and achieve. Uh, what I mean by that is when I went to Syria, I wanted to join local forces. I wanted to discover what the conflict was all about. I wanted to understand where there were cap capability gaps amongst the Syrians. 
So um, I set up a medical unit in 2016, uh, which treated something like 700 casualties. I crowdfunded for materials, and uh, I brought in a number of veterans from Britain and America uh, to train local people. And over the course of the program, we treated hundreds of people. We trained even more. We gave out a lot of medical equipment, and we, and we saved lives. So. Um, it's not just about sort of fighting on the front line in, in Ukraine. You can do other things, but you need to find out, first of all, what your capabilities are. Are you a trained doctor? Are you a trained medic? Are you a former serviceman? Are you a mechanic? These are the sort of things that uh, you need to dwell on. If you don't think you have the skills for Ukraine, um, maybe it's best to focus on what you can do at home, pressuring the politicians to actually support Ukraine more, uh, perhaps raise funds. So there's a lot that people can do. I would encourage them not to feel helpless at all and to um, really find out where they can help and just go for it. Go for it. I can tell you now, Mesa, you are someone I respect very much and you are certainly a braver person than I am. Thank you very much for your time tonight. Lee Jones, I mean, awful situation going on in Ukraine. Um, lots of people writing in saying the UK needs to do more, the UK needs to do more. Such an emotive topic. We talked there about calls for people to actually go over there and get involved. What do you make of all of this? It's difficult to imagine how the UK could be expected to do more. I mean, it has been very active. It has supplied Ukraine with weapons long before the invasion happened. It has been one of the strongest uh, states on international sanctions, pushing for a maximalist approach ahead of what the EU has done. It is lagging behind on the treatment of refugees because it wants to maintain some sense of border control, which I imagine actually quite a lot of your viewers would sympathise with. So beyond that, it's difficult to see what more the UK can do without inflaming the conflict. And I think in, in terms of UK foreign policy, we don't really want to be involved in inflaming a conflict. We want to be involved in trying to dampen it down and find a diplomatic solution to this because this conflict has to be settled. It's not going to be won by force of arms. Now, we have to find an off-ramp. And I think the other thing that the UK needs to think about in respect, in respect of these volunteers, these international, this international legion, is its, its messaging is very mixed on this. So on the one hand, you had, to begin with, Liz Truss was saying she would absolutely support people who went to fight in Ukraine. The Defence Secretary then says, well, if you do go, you should follow Foreign Office advice. The Foreign Office advice is don't go to Ukraine mm. and you might be prosecuted. But then the Home Office says, actually, there is no designated area in Ukraine under which you could be prosecuted. So there's huge amounts of mixed messaging here. And we should have a debate, I think, about you know, under what circumstances is it right for UK citizens to go off to fight in foreign wars? You know, do we prosecute absolutely everybody who goes off to fight? Should we have prosecuted those who went off to fight in Spain in the 1930s against the Franco regime uh, and Hitler? Probably we would say, no, that shouldn't be the case. Uh, only official enemies. You know, we need to have a very clear um, a set of guidelines here, and, and the UK government is really muddying the water. Yeah, and I know Mesa, when he came back from Syria, he was questioned by anti-terrorism police, but wasn't, of course, charged with anything. Um, Mary-Anne, what's your thoughts? Well, I think one of the things that, that really stood out to me uh, from what Mesa was saying is that at no point did he say that he took up arms and fought. He set up a medical unit, he was offering assistance, he was the person who coordinated equipment and expertise being shared with local people. And so... He may well have been carefully briefed by a lawyer to say, whatever you do, <laughs> don't say that at any point you picked up a lethal weapon and pointed it or fired it at someone else. 
We have to remember that however much you're sitting on your sofa or, or listening on your phone or whatever you're doing, feeling helpless, feeling like, yeah, 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 you're riled, like you said, you're riled up and you want to do something. Ukraine may not want you. You may not be helpful in this situation. And Russia has very clearly said, if they find particularly serving personnel, I mean, that's a no-brainer. If you're a serving military um, a, a member of the British uh, military, stay exactly where you are. Do not go AWOL and start fighting in wars that that are on inter, you know on other nations' territory. That is against your professional standards. It's against your duty. It, it's not in the best interests of our country, which is the the country that you are serving. Yeah, and but for the rest of us, there may well be useful things that we can do. It may not be getting on a flight to Ukraine. Uh, there's a chap apparently called Leon Dawson. He's uh, been telling the media his story today. He's a fed seven-year-old from Surrey. He runs a gym and he applied actually to join this foreign legion and was rejected by Ukraine as it happens. Uh, he was told, I quote, he would be a liability because he <laughs> has no uh, experience, military experience. Make of that what you will. Oh. Anyway, Peter. Yeah, so they're not mincing their words, are they, when they say that you'd be a liability. I can't uh, disagree with anything that the others have said, actually. I mean, apart uh, to, to, you know, emphasise his point about serving soldiers, uh, I, I don't know what that is, but, uh, you know, that's extraordinary that they should actually sort of go off. People in the serving army should go off to, to fight, go AWOL. Um, I think the problem a bit was that when Liz Truss originally said, you know... Um, you should go if you feel you can do so. That was an extraordinary thing for a foreign secretary to say, actually. Um, and, and, of course, the government immediately rather distanced itself. Yeah, they did. I was about to say that. I, I felt, actually, that she didn't really know how to answer the question, so she just went one way and said that. Um, I think it was sort of quite irresponsible, actually. Um, and it is the case that if you have got combat experience, then then, you know, and yes, if you can help. But I think for most people, it absolutely means in fundraising, doing the things that, in fact, British people have been doing quite brilliantly from what I can see. Cool, everyone's and, fundraising, and aren't they? It's say, everywhere. Yeah, but I mean, when people say Britain should do more, can do more, um, quite rightly, I don't quite see what else we can do. In fact, the, actually, the Ukrainians uh, see it this way. Um, you know, we are their number one heroes at the moment. I mean, I saw a poll before I got here tonight. OK, it was about Boris Johnson, but he's like second under Zelensky in, in Ukrainian eyes as to being a friend of the Ukraine, way above the EU and way above the US. And you could sort of see that yesterday in that historic moment in the Commons. So I think that we should, I think, in some ways be proud of our response, you know, without wishing to be complacent, but we should be. I say, I mean, I, I know you say we should be proud of our response and there's lots of you saying, actually, we should do more. But then there's the other school of thought, actually. Um, you will have seen, of course, the whole suggestion about Poland uh, providing jets, which was then rejected. And there's this whole kind of... Uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be... Pick my words carefully so not to be offensive. But there is the other school of thought, actually, and I'm looking at you, Lee, which kind of is, but this isn't our fight. You know, we, we're doing enough, we're doing what we can, we've done a lot, and we need to almost step back a little bit in order to protect our own safety as much as possible. 
Do you agree or not? Not entirely, because unfortunately it is our fight insofar as we are part of NATO and NATO has played a role in creating this conflict. Ukraine's not part of NATO. No, indeed. And in fact, NATO is clearly not willing to admit or to protect Ukraine. But NATO has never sent a strong signal that that is in fact the case. And so what has it allowed its Ukrainian allies to do is to loudly call for immediate admission to the EU, for admission to NATO, which has fanned Russian security anxieties, which is very dangerous in a context where the Ukrainian society is already deeply divided between forces favouring integration with the enemies of Russia and forces that are more pro-Russian. The only way that you can reunite Ukrainian society and regain Ukraine's national sovereignty is for Ukraine to pursue a foreign policy of neutrality. And what NATO should do if they care about the Ukrainian people is to declare that Ukraine will become a neutral country and NATO does not wish to expand into Ukraine and is not going to do that. They've said that. That is, in fact, well, they haven't said it clearly enough. They haven't said it clearly enough. The fact that Zelensky went on uh, television the other day to demand that NATO establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine and blames now every death in the country on NATO for not establishing that no-fly zone shows you that either he was incredibly naive in thinking that NATO would do this or he'd been led up the garden path to think that NATO was going to come to his rescue. And that has led to a series of quite reckless behaviours by Ukrainian ruling elites. So Russia needs to withdraw. Russia is brutally violating Ukrainian sovereignty. But NATO has played a role here which is very unhelpful as well. And so it's not that it's not our conflict, that this is some conflict in some faraway place of which we know nothing. We are involved. But frankly, we shouldn't be so involved. If we're going to bring about peace, we need to pursue a settlement in Ukraine which will involve neutralisation and peace in that area. Peace in that area. Do you think that is going to be possible? Marianne, I know you're keen to come back in. Um, just very brief final thoughts on that. Um, I think fundamental is the acknowledgement of Ukrainian sovereignty, which is they are a sovereign nation and they are entitled to pursue their own foreign policy. And that includes requesting entry to NATO, which is a defensive alliance. It's not an aggressing alliance. Right, go on, last point. I've got to go to a break. I've got to go to a break. <coughs> and I know I've got to go to a break, but quick response. Being a sovereign country means being realistic about what foreign policy you can pursue and being accountable to your own people. Yeah, Pursuing but we... a policy of alignment with the West is incredibly divisive within Ukrainian society and it has led to the destruction of the Ukrainian people. No, you can't blame Ukraine for this. This is all on Russia. Yes, I totally agree with that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Is it all on Russia? Can Ukraine be blamed? Is it straightforward? Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Dubry. A brief reminder as uh, to who my panel are tonight. Peter Whittle, Director at the New Culture Forum Legions, Professor of Political Economy and International Relations and Anthropologist Mary Ann O'Hotter. Now, I tell you, we just went to a break a moment ago. And if you missed it, we were just debating the Russian-Ukrainian uh, situation before the break. And I tell you, in the break, Mary Ann turned around to Professor Lee and said, shame on you for your uh, position on this. So I'm going to come back to the pair of you just for a couple <laughs> of minutes because I do want to talk about the cost of living as well. Why are you saying shame on Professor Lee for his opinion? Well, Professor Lee, I think it's not right to suggest that the seeds of this conflict are grounded in, in the, the, the state of Ukraine and that there was this 
aspect of, of discontent and, and um, division within Ukraine. I think that's a very dangerous narrative that we start to tell, that basically it's Ukraine's fault and this was always going to happen. Um, that isn't the case. Russia invaded. Russia has invaded. They invaded in 2008. They invaded in 2014. We sat back, let them do it. We didn't want to pick the fight with big old Russia. And look what we have created through our, through our absence of action. It's not, it's not appropriate to suggest that Ukraine brought this on themselves right. or that essentially there were the seeds of that discontent and the division and this is just the inevitable consequence of it. That is not the case. Russia are the aggressors. So Russia didn't invade in 2008. They invaded Georgia in 2008 and they invaded Georgia in 2008 in order to prevent it joining NATO. So since 2008, the Russians have made very clear... But you're suggesting Sorry, that's legitimate. Yeah, let, let him respond. Yeah. I didn't okay. interrupt you. It's not a question of whether it is legitimate for Russia to do what it does, because legitimacy one way or the other does not prevent President Putin doing what he's doing. He is a major military power and he has shown that he is capable and willing to use military force against neighbouring states to prevent them joining NATO. He's been very clear about this and Russian leaders since the 1990s have said they cannot tolerate the eastward expansion of NATO. They find it humiliating they find it threatening. And given that NATO often deploys forces beyond NATO in non-defensive um, deployments, it's understandable from that perspective. Now, Russia should not be invading other countries, but that is the geopolitical context. The context in Ukraine is that the, the society is, has become polarized between East and West. In the East, there are many Russian speakers, ethnic Russians, who feel much closer to Russia than they do to the West. Western elites since 2014 have pursued a policy of integration with Russia's enemies and a hyper-Ukrainian nationalism which attempts to reforge Ukrainian nationalism around a Ukrainian identity which excludes Russian speakers, which excludes uh, Russian identity. And that has only compounded divisions. The only, way, the only way you can reunite the Ukrainian nation is to, have, is to pursue a neutral foreign policy. That's the basis on which the Russians will get out of Eastern Ukraine and that's what's needed to reunite the country. OK, so three things. Uh, sorry, I have to come in. Yeah. You say uh, that's the only basis on which the Russians will get out of the Ukraine. That's a massive leap of faith bordering on naivety, isn't it? You think that that is the way they're going to get out of Ukraine? Well, Russia has made its demands very clear. No, no, they haven't. That's what they say their demands are. Their demands are to... Putin is frustrated that the Soviet Union fell apart. So... The, the, the kind of the argument that he's trying to denazify Ukraine or that it was actually because NATO were threatening him on his on his Western borders. It is nonsense. Putin is pursuing an imperialist strategy to bring back great mother Russia. And he won't be satisfied with the Donbass region. He won't be satisfied with just Crimea. He wants all of Ukraine. He wants to see a great nation once more. And so the fact that he feels bruised is nothing to do with what we do or don't do. It's nothing to do. Um, you talk about, you know, the way to establish a Ukrainian sovereignty is what we do. It's not really about us. Let's not put us at the centre of this. Mm. It's about Ukraine. It's about the Ukrainian people. And you can certainly have a very effective and thriving nation state that recognises and respects ethnic differences within a community. People can hold more than one identity at once. You can be British and British Asian. You can be... English and British. You can be English and European. With smart creatures, you know that, Lee. You're never just one thing. 
We are a multiplicity of identities and the Ukrainians are as capable of living that reality as we are. Do you want to come back? Well, I'm afraid the record of the last several years is that is against what you're saying. What do you Ukraine mean? Ukraine is a fractured society. The only way to reunite Ukraine as a nation is to pursue a policy that is capable of uniting a population that has become deeply divided. And that means a policy of neutrality. That's the only way to satisfy Russian security concerns is to, is to declare that Ukraine will pursue a policy of foreign policy neutrality. Then any concerns about um, Russian imperialism will be put to the test. But the, the, they were put to the, the, the test. They were put to the test in 2008 when, when, when <sighs> Russia invaded Ukraine, invaded Georgia in 2008. They did not occupy the country and, and, and in, integrate it into the Russian Federation. So this idea that they're on this, this quest to sort of re-establish the Soviet Union, it just doesn't fit into reality. It really does in Ukraine because they withdrew the and Donbass. Allowed democracy to be ah, yes, yes. In but look at the Donbass. You know, they've they've acknowledged, they've recognised these as as independent um, uh, sovereign territories, which they are not under international law. Yes. Those are pro-separatist, pro-Russian, bankrolled by Russia um, regions, which have seen an ethnic cleansing of the people in those communities who don't identify as Russian. They, people, those people have fled for their lives. What I would ask that you, is not ask acknowledging a reality in Ukraine. That's creating a falsehood that backs Russia's story. All I would ask you to consider, Marianne, is why those regions became separatist regions after 2014. It is intimately connected to the overthrow of a democratically elected government which had strong support in the East, which deprived the Ukrainian state of its authority in the East and allowed local mayors to pursue a separatist policy. So we have to understand why those regions became separatist in the first place and turned to Russia for assistance. It is intimately connected to a domestic political crisis in Ukraine. The situation there is incredibly complex. I don't expect everybody to know all the history inside out, but can we please look at the history carefully before and not resort to sort of um, cliches about Putin being a, a madman or an imperialist trying to recreate the Soviet Union or being like Hitler. The situation is complex and requires a sophisticated analysis and solution. Well, I've got to say... That saps morale in a very bad way, actually. If you just sort of say people are resorting to cliches, I don't think there's anything cliched about our discussion tonight I, at all. And I think that actually, you know, this is a man who's got a big painting of Peter the Great in his study. Um, I think, you know, he absolutely sees his, his own destiny linked with that of Russia's. It's, it's not, the argument is not about how to unite Ukraine. I mean, you know, that is an argument, that is a discussion, but the whole point of this has been total aggression by Russia against Ukraine. It's as simple as that. You know, there's no point, there's no need to overthink this. In some if, if world politics was so simple, then I would be out of a job. Right. There's a whole there's whole armies of academics out there devoted to studying international politics precisely because it's not a morality play. But you, yes, but you just said, you know, it's not that he's some kind of no one said he's a mad. But lots of people any, have said he's a mad. Yeah, but not the, here. No. No, but basically, I think the idea that he sort of sees his role as as basically unifying Russian speakers and all the rest of it and 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 for the motherland that that is a you know that's a very very valid. Point. I think that's been that's been made very very clear by his actions.
opinions are divided, um, probably about 50-50 actually, on different sides of the arguments. I think one thing that we can conclude is it is not a simple situation and certainly not one that we're going to resolve on Jubes and Kerr tonight. Uh, the conversations will rumble on, I'm sure. Let's uh, touch on cost of living, shall we? I was supposed to do that before the break, but I ran out of time. So let's do it now. I'll cut to the chase, shall I? Rather than reading out long-winded things about the topic, we know what's going on. The cost of everything is going up and that is going to continue. What, Peter Whittle, should we do about it? Well, one thing we, we shouldn't do, I, I think, Michelle, is what's been suggested today by that uh, political, uh, you know, major figure, what's his name, Richard Bergen, uh, that we should have a wealth tax. Uh, we should tax the... Oh, this is instead of the what he was suggesting, exactly, is instead of, of the, the national insurance exactly. rise in April to tax the wealthiest. And uh, frankly, I think it's a very bad idea, simply because if anyone lived through the 1970s, you know what things like wealth taxes do. Um, basically, then it was like 98%, I think, was the high rate of tax at that time. And people just, wealth, you know, basically people who created wealth just left uh, the country, simple as that. Uh, so they didn't really collect very much from them anyway. Um, I think that that's the wrong way to go, besides which I think it's just, you know, basically mm, kind of envious politics really as well. But I mean, you know, it's, it's part of the course coming from that guy. What would you have us do instead then? Well, I mean, there's got to be other ways to explore. You know, I mean, first of all... Because it's I surely mean, not charging the people who are on the minimum wage, no, trying no, to feed two no. Hang on, by the way, when you're talking, my viewers are telling me your mic's crackling and it's because you're leaning in. There oh, you go. There uh, you go, no. viewers. You'll be able to hear him clearly I, now. I, I just think uh, it's it's sort of like the quick and easy popular thing, oh, let's have a, a wealth tax. No, it, it basically, it doesn't work. It didn't work before. I mean, it's just what I think... Well, well that's not answering the... Yeah, I was going to say, term. it's not answering the, the question. In the long term, we've got to look at this whole... Uh, you know, uh, net zero thing, which is going to cripple us as well and co cost possibly about a trillion. I think that should be basically scrapped. Um, that would lead to more, uh, to more funds. These two are... you, look, you look incredulous. No, no, I've just got my head in my hands because every time we talk about the cost of living, particularly on GB News, it comes round to we should scrap green levies, we should do away with net zero, we should start plundering the earth for more oil and gas. And the thing is, it's not either or. We can't say what we should do is destroy the environment and the livability of our world for a short-term benefit in how much money we have in our pockets. I am not saying that the cost of living crisis is not real. I'm, yes, absolutely understand that some people are going to be facing dis devastating decisions about whether they heat their homes or whether they feed themselves and their kids. And that is not acceptable. But it is not as simple as to say what we need to do is therefore write off the future of those children by destroying the future you can press pause of our country. Car, yeah. You can press pause on the green levies. Apocalyptic talk. We're saying writing off the future of the children. No, it no. really isn't. We are in a nature and climate crisis. No, no, no. no are you saying we're not? No. Do you not think we are? The thing is, is that you see the way that you argue these things is is that somehow one is being heretical. That in fact one is being sort of morally bad if you actually even go against this kind of narrative. I don't know, I'm, I'm very ambivalent about whether the actual, uh, about global warming itself, I'm not sort of dismissing it at all. But I think that when you talk about a crisis, um, I think that there are many other basic 
agendas there, I would say. I, uh, and I think that, you know, from my experience of arguing with people in the Green Party, for example, in the past, I have to absolutely say that was the case. They're very anti-capitalist, for example. The blame always tends to be on the West. They very rarely go and try, for example, to demonstrate in Beijing. They don't demonstrate in India, the places that actually have nothing to do with this, who don't want anything to do with it. They always go for here and for our actions, telling us to have fewer, fewer children, all the rest of it. So there are agendas there, political agendas. Right. Dr Lee, I want your thoughts, not least, because <laughs> I want to fiddle. I want to fiddle with your mic whilst go he's ahead. talking. Go ahead. Who are misses? I do. <laughs> Lee, your thoughts? I think it's not helpful to uh, segue from discussion of the cost of living crisis into a, a culture war about, about climate change. Well, if I can finish, uh, I didn't interrupt you. Uh, I think we have to take a, a, a fundamental look at the reason why um, increases in energy bills or increases in rent is enough to plunge so many households into serious crisis because we have a large number of people in this country living just above the poverty line or, or already in relative poverty or fuel poverty. And so the massive hikes that we're seeing in energy costs, which will be exacerbated, by the way, by the conflict in Ukraine, um, that's enough to push so many households into crisis. Now, in a wealthy developed society like our own, which is the sixth largest economy on the planet, we shouldn't be in that situation. And we need to ask big questions about why are we in that situation and what kinds of long range public policies can we adopt to get us out of this mess? Well, so fact I think I think mobilizing resources, for example, from a wealth tax is OK. But what is that going to be used for? It needs to be used for massive upgrading and productive capacity in order to raise wages. Because one of the reasons why so many people are tipped into crisis and poverty is because of years and years of stagnation in wages, because of years of underinvestment and slow productivity growth. So we need to be investing massively in energy output. We need to be investing in, in productivity. We need a proper industrial and incomes policy to raise up people who are living in poverty or just on the edge of it. We shouldn't be in this situation in 2022. Oh my goodness, we agree. Hey? We agree well, let's say go. That is I think we've got to actually look at the huge uh, resources of, of shale oil that we have. Uh, they're just about to concrete, you know, over all the various outlets. I think that that should be rethought. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is rethought. Um, because that is a massive resource that we have that we're just simply, on ideological grounds, ignoring. Well, there you go. Um, Elizabeth has been in touch saying, you guys, talking about a climate change, currently, uh, she's saying, instead of talking about a climate crisis, focus on the financial crisis that she and many others are experiencing. Personally, Elizabeth, I'm with you on that. I would certainly be pressing pause on the green levies, at the very least at this moment in time. Anyway, I do want to touch, if I may, on one more topic before we finish the show tonight. Um, the UK is set to create a new child cruelty register that would see child abusers be subject to stringent legal requirements and even face the prospect of losing any 
future children that they may have. This follows a four-year campaign by a fantastic lady, Paula Hudgel, who fostered Tony Hudgel. You might remember this story. It was a little baby. He was admitted to hospital with serious multiple injuries. Uh, the campaign, of course, gained further momentum following the stories that we'll all be familiar with now. Uh, the awful killing of the 16-month-old star Hobson and six-year-old Arthur Labinger Hughes. Justice Secretary Dominic Raab has now given his support to the Child Cruelty Register, making its creation much more likely. So I'm asking, do you think child abusers should be placed on a register? I most certainly do. Uh, and if I ran the country, quite frankly, and you abused a child in the way that some people do these days, I'd be looking at sterilising you as well so that you can't ever have a child again. But frankly, it's probably a good idea then that I don't run the country. Uh, Marianne, your thoughts? So this, uh, this, this kind of story has come out of the fact that there's a national child safeguarding practice review panel and they're going to re re uh, produce a report that will be published in May. And one of the things that Dominic Raab has asked them to look at is whether this register would prevent um, harm coming to children. And that is fundamentally the thing that we have to focus on, because it's all well and good saying we should have a register. Of course we should. That seems like common sense. But actually we need to base it on on the evidence and whether it really will prevent harm and protect children. Because fundamentally, I think it's all well and good that we consider a register, but I would much, much rather we prevent a child being harmed in the first place rather than saying after the event, the people who did that terrible cruelty to that children are now on a register. And the thing is, what we've seen over the past more than a decade now is the stripping back of services to the bare bones and then beyond that, so that there are social social workers who are not able to perform their roles. These are committed people who really want to make lives better for children in the, the, the most challenging family situations, but they haven't got the resources. You know, senior people have left because they're stressed out and burned out. And it's all well and good saying, oh, we should have a register. But actually what we should have is social services systems and police working together Lee? so that those children are protected right from the beginning. So we, it's prevented rather than registered after the event. Lee? I mean, I tend to agree. The, the question is, is it going to be effective? It's a very emotive issue. And obviously in cases like the ones you've cited, I mean, the abuse was absolutely horrific. Mm. And there's no question in anybody's mind that those individuals should not be anywhere near children. The question is, you know, how far do you extend that? Do you extend that to people who, for example, maybe have suffered abuse in their own childhoods and consequently don't know how to look after children and therefore are guilty of abuse and neglect? The current approach with social services, you try to intervene with those families and teach those parents parenting skills so that those children don't have to be taken into care because taking children into care also inflicts harm on mm. children. So there are some, it, it's really difficult and there, there's a really difficult balance to be struck every day by social workers that are handling with these things. So all I can say really is that I hope that this, this review panel looks at all the evidence and does what's right for children. Ideally, we have a less bureaucratic child protection system that focuses on early intervention and puts the, the welfare of children first. Peter? Yeah, I think it's, it's important to know the details, like what, what would put you on the register, for example. Um, you know... I think that, uh, obviously, you know, um, it's appalling. There's no question about that. But what kind of abuse, for example? I mean, these sort of things, I know this sounds like I'm nitpicking, but these things are very, very important. What, 
what actually, how would we define it, you know? I mean, what, and what, what would cause someone to be on this register? I think these are incredibly important. I think they are incredible, um, incredibly important questions and hopefully we get answers. Um, ultimately, I think we all want the same thing, don't we? For children to be safe, especially in mm. their own home. Uh, Philip says, you are all missing the point tubes. Ridiculous conversation. We shouldn't need a register because they shouldn't be out on the streets, these abusers. End of. Well, I'm into that. Thank you very much to my panel for your company tonight. And thank you as well for your company at home. Have a good evening and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>